Welcome to Behavioral Grooves. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. Are you new to Behavioral Grooves? Is this your first time listening? If so, we would like to welcome you to the 140th or so episode. Welcome, welcome, welcome. (laughs) You may or may not know that Behavioral Grooves shares interesting and insightful conversations with researchers and practitioners of behavioral science. And we follow it by a grooving session where Kurt and I reflect on what we learned from our guest. And then we end each episode with the ever-popular bonus track where we recap the most salient points in our discussion. And Tim, don't forget that in addition to researchers and practitioners from around the world, we also talk to accidental behavioral scientists. They're people who are doing really great things with the principles of behavioral science, but don't necessarily refer to them in behavioral science terms. And that ties in perfectly with our guest today. Oh, it sure does, Kurt. But before we get to our guest, we need to do a couple of things. Okay, What do we have to do? (laughs) Well, first, our listeners should know that Behavioral Grooves is on a roll, a big roll. We were named to Chartable's global top 20 podcast list in social science, and our reach has exceeded 120 countries. Woohoo! We've also been growing exponentially this year over last year, which was already a terrific gain over the year before that. And we want to let listeners know that we've launched a Patreon campaign. Patreon is a way that you can help us offset some of the hard costs of production by making a donation. On average, each hour of our the produced show takes between eight and 10 hours of our combined work between research, preparation, interview recording, post-production for intros and our grooving session, editing and hosting. Yeah, and beyond the research and prep documents that we create for each episode, we also develop episode notes that feature, on average, a dozen links to behavioral science resources and a half dozen musical references. Additionally, we incur hosting fees, website design and maintenance, transcription costs, the storage space for the terabytes of data for our episodes. For over two years, we have been doing this without monetary support, and today we are asking for your help. This is an effort of love for us, but your support and patronage would be very much appreciated. You can go out and see the different levels. We do have some fun levels and bonuses of things that you can earn. So check us out at www.patreon.com forward slash behavioral groups. Those will be in the show notes as well. Okay, back to our guest today. Our guest today is Iris Safrier. Now, she's not a household name in the behavioral science community, so we want to tell you why we thought it was so important to have her as a guest. Right, Tim. We wanted to talk to Iris because she's an accidental behavioral scientist. She puts into practice some really important aspects of behavioral science, but she does it without knowledge of the specific names or components of the science. And in the end, she gets really great results. Yeah, definitely. Iris is a business leadership analyst and strategist, but her most important attribute in the episode is her keen sense of observation of the human condition. Iris grew up in a kibbutz in the Negev Desert in Israel, the daughter of two Holocaust survivors, and she's a lifelong learner and is committed to making the world a better place. Now, she does that through volunteerism and public speaking, where she shares insights on anti-racism, recognition of the other, and the importance of working together in teams. It's a remarkable story and a really great conversation. Yeah, definitely. Now, be prepared to hear less about the Holocaust experiences of her parents and more about behavioral methods she's incorporated to tell their story. Exactly. Iris found that in order to get an audience engaged in how her parents survived the Holocaust, she needed to insert herself into the story. She needed to share her firsthand experience of living with her two parents. She needed to let her emotions come through. She found out that she could engage the audience more when she translated her father's Hebrew poems on the fly than when the video showed the subtitles of his words. It was a clever observation. Yeah, she is astute and passionate, that is for sure. And this was just not our normal interview. Not at all. Right up to the end of our discussion, Iris wowed us. She even left us with some very thoughtful words, and we hope that you'll enjoy them. So with that, we urge you to sit back on a cushion of inclusion and enjoy our conversation with Iris Safrier. Iris, welcome to the Behavioral Groups Podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Tim and Kurt. It's really great to have you here. Yeah, we're excited. 
we scheduled this originally when we were going to actually meet in the studio in person, and that's no longer available. So, <laughs> oh well. But let's still start with a little speed round. Um, Kurt, would you like to start? Sure. So, bicycle or unicycle, which would you prefer? Bicycle. <laughs> when which- my feet are off the ground. I would like to sort of know what I'm doing. (laughs) Okay. Um, Would you prefer to give up your mobile phone or your laptop for a year? Mobile phone. Mm. Okay. All right. Monet or Michelangelo? Wow. This is is a hard one. Having to think about this one. Uh, Michelangelo. Okay. All right. Okay. Good enough. Good enough. How about, would you prefer to travel on a fixed itinerary or no itinerary at all? (laughs) (laughs) I think, I think, I think you have thought the hardest about these questions. Okay. No, okay. No itinerary. No itinerary. All right. right. Because you travel a lot. You, you, in, you know, days before it might be a little ironic. Here we are in a no travel time, but, um, But yeah, you've traveled a lot. Okay, so um, so in your travels, let's let's kind of use that as a as a, a point to bounce off into sort of the world. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about the kind of work that you do? Yes. So um, so I I have um, my own consulting company, and I, I do two things, two main things. One thing is I work with companies in the agriculture and biotechnology industries. Um, about strategy and business development. So that's one portion of my business. And the second portion of my business is I do public speaking. Um, and I speak about my history as a daughter of two Holocaust survivors. Um, I speak about inclusion, diversity, and really understanding um, of inclusion of the other, and that instead into uh, anti-racism. Yeah, the the anti-racism thing is really amazing. Do you find yourself in front of audiences of people who uh, are doubters or, for lack of a better word, non-believers about the Holocaust? I've had some some challenging questions from audience members, uh, but no one came straight out and say, "I'm I'm a Holocaust denier," um, at least to at least in public. What are the the biggest misconceptions that you are trying to uh, get people to to understand better when you're in your conversations, um, if it's regarding the Holocaust or even just some of the other uh, aspects around people understanding, you know, racist ideas and and different things like that? So I think think there's a couple of things going on. Um, I think First of all, when it comes to, to trauma in families, um, you know, it's quote unquote easy to report about numbers. Mm. So what what I like to do is um, I like to share personal stories. Um, I like to to, sh- to share um, how it makes me feel to come from two parents that experience this trauma. Um, I I am not a historian. Um, by by training, so what I know to do is I know to share my personal my personal family story, and um, it's been a quite a journey for me. So in due course, I actually am now getting to the part of sharing my feelings. Um, so that's that's another that's another layer that I've that I've added. Yeah, tell us about that. Tell us about this journey of going from merely a narrative to something that is more, it sounds, um, for lack of a better word, more intimate, that you're sharing your own feelings about this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so so the, the, the journey really started in childhood, where um, my mom did not talk about what happened to her in the Holocaust at all. It was just too difficult. Mm. Um, we, I feel extremely fortunate that our father shared with us um, everything that happened to him. And so there was a, a reference point to understand the, the silence, if you will, that was in, in the house, this heaviness, this tremendous heaviness. My oldest brother, Uri, calls these places that we don't want to touch our trembling places. 
And as I grew up and matured, I, I started to understand that if I actually get closer to these trembling places, I would bring healing to myself and to the people I love. When I was young, if someone came to our house, um, my father is a prolific, was a prolific writer and a speaker, um, I would leave the room. It would just be too difficult to listen um, to what happened to him. Um, in due course, I started to ask him more questions and to read what he wrote about what happened to him. And then really a, a pretty big event happened when um, in my own family, we have three children um, and our oldest, um, Avi, when, when he was in the sixth grade um, in school, the teacher uh, said to the class, can anyone invite someone who could speak to us about the Holocaust? And uh, Avi raised his hand and he said, my mom will. Uh, and then the teacher called me and uh, I was like, okay, I've just been voluntold. Um, <laughs> yes, girl, you have. <laughs> girl, it's time for you to grow up and make this happen. Um, and that was the first time I spoke publicly about my family story um, in front of the sixth grade. It was incredibly difficult. Um, there were a lot of tissue boxes involved. Mm. Um, and I had my husband with me because I knew from the from the presentation I prepared that I'm not going to be able to necessarily get through all of it. So he was, he was there to help me. And then I went, I went from there. So in the beginning, it was about telling my parents story. I know more about my father. And then in due course, it was about how do I feel about that? But it's been a journey of over 10 years mm -hmm. to get to the, how I feel about it part. So Iris, you talked a little bit about the, actually even before going to your son's um, you know, classroom and talking about this, though, there was a journey to even start to listen to your father. You said you used to leave the room and, and not do that. And then you started asking more questions. What do you think got you to the point where you wanted to learn more, that you wanted to ask those questions? Was it just age or were there things going on in your life that kind of want, you wanted to, to understand better from that perspective? I, I think age is a, is a beautiful thing. <laughs> as, as we get older, I think I agree with you more and more. <laughs> um, the, the, the other thing too, um, I, I'm one of four siblings um, and they're, they're just amazing people. And I just, I, I'm the youngest by far. And it's, it's just been an amazing journey for me to see what they do and the questions that they have asked our parents over the years. I just wanted to kind of do what, what they did. And then as I became more and more independent and started to have my own life, um, yeah, I, I truly think it, it was my own maturity and uh, my friends, my boyfriend at the time, just asking me questions. And I'm like, Again, it's like it's time to grow up. <laughs> wow, how did how did the impact of your of your speaking change when going from this is my parents' story to this is my story, this is my feelings, these are the things that that I'm struggling with? What kind of impact did you have, or or how did the impact change uh, on the audiences that you were speaking to? I I I think that. I think that whenever someone gives a presentation, I, th I think almost any kind of presentation, uh, people actually see themselves in whatever the speaker is talking about, right? There, there are different points of contact there that they're like, yeah, this makes sense to me. Or like, yeah, this happened to me or this happened to my grandmother. And so the more I was able to bring my feelings um, to the presentation, I think I, I made a a stronger personal connection with my audience. Um, I, I've been speaking in schools um, over the years, many different schools, and the personal letters that I've gotten from students um, just just blow me away. I just sit in my kitchen table and I just cry wow. because they tell me about what's happening to inside their home, uh, about a personal trauma that they're going through Ooh. and what it means to them to hear someone speak it's not their story it's my story but to speak these things in public so you're teaching you're doing a lot of your 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 talking to 
uh, school children and, and and obviously adults as well. But but particularly with school children, what how do how do kids take this? I mean, what is it that they resonate with? And I obviously it's going to be different with high schoolers and middle schoolers and grade schoolers. And I don't know the the breakdown of of who you talk to more. But do you see kids getting a a message out of this that goes beyond, as you said, they, they relate it back to themselves. And so in that relationship back to themselves, I'm just, I guess I'm, what I'm trying to ask is what's the message that, that you think kids are getting out of this uh, in today's world? So based on the, the questions um, and the letters that I've gotten from kids over the years, that they really love that, someone came and told them that the Holocaust that they have learned about in school is, um, yeah, it's, it's in their history book. More importantly, it happened to real people yeah. um, wow. that have names that my father was once a child. Uh, it didn't, he didn't just start his life after the Holocaust or when he was a 70 year old where they see, I show videos when um, my siblings and I took our father to Europe to retrace what happened to him. So when, when I tell the stories about his time growing up or how I'm feeling about it, they're like, these are real people. It's, it's people like me. They went through difficult things. Some of these difficult things I can identify with. So those, those are the biggest, biggest things that I think um, my audiences have taken away. When you encounter people who are doubters, uh, and my guess is that uh, you probably recognize it uh, because of a kind of a high degree of sensitivity without them having to come right out and say it, right? They don't have to be public, you know, um, they don't have to be very public about it, uh, but you could probably hear it in the way that they phrase questions. Um, do you feel uh, an obligation to try to persuade them? And and if you do, mm-hmm. how how do you go about that? Yeah, so um, I, I don't have any kind of um, sense in me that my job is to persuade deniers. Mm. I think it's um, it's a fruitless expedition. Mm. Um, what I tell my audiences is when they ask me questions that relate for the historical structure, I, I take them through the stages of genocide and I remind them that the last stage of genocide is genocide denial. Oh, and wow. so, and so, when a question that comes up that is really phrased in a way that comes from that place, and to your point, Tim, um, I have an oversensitive uh, feeling towards that. Um, I say, uh, let me just remind you that the last stage of genocide is genocide denial, and what I say is, I'm, I'm on to you. I know what you're doing. Yeah. And I don't engage in that. So going back to working with kids, um, and, and you talked about that narrative and, and people, them seeing themselves and, and different things. What, what do they, what do kids know about the Holocaust today? I mean, how, how good is, is our education system in teaching them about the Holocaust? I think we could always do better. Mm. Uh, I, I really, I, I feel very strongly about this because I, I can't really comment about overall in the United States or uh, all over the world. I just feel strongly that we have to have genocide education as part of a curriculum uh, in the different geographies, uh, unfortunately, can have different genocides that they can refer to um, that are very much applicable to that geography. So the Holocaust gets um, gets reminded many times because of the scale is, is enormous. Unfortunately, there are genocides and injustices that just absolutely have to be part of a curriculum. Mm. Uh, 
and we, we got to talk to them about, about that way because the patterns in terms of changes in a society, demonization of the other, they're really all at the base of what leads to genocide. Yeah, I was just going to say it starts with words. Mm. And, so, and so, yeah, education has a huge, huge role to play in this. What other areas, uh, you talk about these different geographies. Could you share a couple of examples with us? Well, the, there was there was a genocide in South Sudan. There was uh, uh, the, the killing fields in Cambodia. Um, there is there's genocides that are happening today where there's identification of people that are quote unquote undesirable, mm. and so and so unfortunately, um, no matter what geography you pick around the world, in Africa, in Asia. In North America has troubled history in terms of targeting indigenous indigenous people, um, injustices that have to do with taking people from from Africa and bringing them to North America, called slavery. That's a huge chapter that needs to be talked about more. So, again, I think it's it all comes again. It begins with words. It begins with saying that someone looks different from us or maybe worth less than us mm. and that somehow this journey into making it okay to to treat them in an inhumane way so all of these again just we we need more space in our educational system to to talk about this do you see so my my kids go to minneapolis public schools and uh, the schools uh, that they go to are, are relatively intermixed from uh, a number of different ethnicities and and uh, backgrounds, and we have a a number of students of Somali and and uh, Eastern Africa descent who may have more of a you know they lived in or their parents came from from refugee camps and they they came over here recently in order to to get a better life. Do you see a difference when you're talking to groups of students who may have some of that history or some some kids within that class who have at least a, a, a tenuous little link to to something like that versus, you know, the the class that I would have gone up and grew up in Iowa going to, which, you know, we had one African-American in the entire school uh, that we that we grew up in and pretty much everybody was from the Midwest and lived in the Midwest. And I was a foreigner because I moved down from Minnesota. Um, <laughs> do, yeah. do you see a difference? Is there a difference in, in, in how people view this or just in their, their ability to, to connect with it? Because maybe there's somebody that might, again, as you mentioned, it put names to put, you know, that when you talk about your father, and that there were actually, these are real people, they're, they're not just numbers. And I think that's a really important thing. And I'm just wondering if you see that uh, more more real when you, you have those maybe connections in, in the classroom. I, I, have, I have seen connect, connectivity from students of, of, of all background, not necessarily more in one classroom versus another. Um, and then the, the, the other thing that um, I... I tell my audiences is that is that everyone has a story mm. every single family has a story and uh, I really encourage them to on purpose go and meet someone that they don't know on purpose um, go visit your grandma and, and ask her what was it like for you growing up there's got to be a story there there is a story there well, that's actually refreshing cool. to hear that, 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 and, and as you said, you, you point out that, that everybody has a story. So, so thank you for that. Cause I think that's a really good lesson to take regardless that it doesn't matter what your background is. There's a, there's a story in that background somewhere. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's uh, switch themes just a little bit. I was wondering if we could talk just a little bit about music, uh, <laughs> First of all, well, you know, hang hang on, Kurt. I'm, I'm just wondering about. Uh, <laughs> go ahead, go ahead, Tim. I was just going to let yours know. This is a 
We always do this. Tim always brings up music, and I always I always roll my eyes at him. Yeah, but it's it's almost part of the script at this point. It is. It is actually part of the script. Uh, I'm just wondering if when you are, you, you said that you use video, you're using video to help uh, bring these stories to life. Is music ever a part of that? Is the mm. the kind of music that uh, your parents grew up with or uh, that that you grew up with, is that ever a part of your presentation? Knowing, and I'm asking because I know how deeply we can connect to music or how we feel we relate to music on a more feelings basis rather than a cognitive basis. Right. Uh, I have not used music in my presentations uh, and I have not, um, have not added um, music to my videos. Uh, the videos that I share, it's, um, it's my father speaking. Mm. And, 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 and actually to your point about music and, and I think even more so sound, um, some of the videos I, I share are my father speaking in Hebrew mm. about what happened to him. And I don't have uh, a translation or a, uh, where it's, it says on the screen exactly what he says in English to all yeah. my videos. And I've kind of experimented with that around. And what I've, what I've done, actually, the recent presentation, I spoke over the video to say, to the audience in English, what he's speaking in, in Hebrew, and um, found that as effective as where there are subtitles and sometimes even more. So it's just it's just hearing his voice directly that's really important. yeah yeah. I would think hearing his voice directly is important, and of course, every language has a sound, and it would be important for uh, for a listener to experience. Uh, it, it, you know, a, a, an original language to him, and Hebrew has a specific set of sounds about it. It's going to communicate emotion and feeling and narrative in a way that's unique to that language. So true. So true. I want to go back to something that you said, because I, I think this is important too. You said it starts with words. Can you expand upon that? What What do you mean by when you say it starts with words? I think I think a lot of it has to do with the way I grew up. Uh, my my both of my parents um, were educators. There were a lot of words in my house. My father um, was a published is a published poet in Israel, um, a newspaper editor and journalist. And my mom was uh, <clears throat> was it was a teacher um, of deaf children. This is what she did for her career, and. And I think it goes back to Genesis. Mm. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And so I think a lot of these ideas are very ancient. Uh, and I, I think that as humans, we grew up with it. Because when, um, when a mom says to her child, we're going to make a cake, it starts with her saying to her child, we're going to make a cake. And you know what? In 45 minutes, there comes a cake. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that's quite powerful. And even if you can't speak and we have the fortune that we can read, then we read those words mm -hmm. and there could still be a cake. Right? So different people have different capabilities or different tools available to them. Um, and, and words build wor wor worlds because... This is, this is how we make things so. And so if we want to make something beautiful as a cake, that happens. If we want to make something destructive, that I'll go all the way to, to the end of talking about genocide, mm -hmm. that also starts with, with words. And so that's where we just have to really, really understand the, the importance of words because we know how words make, can make us feel, right? And they can affect how we sleep. They can affect our health and so on and so forth. And so, yeah, I, I think about that a lot. Yeah, words uh, words matter, right? The the choice of words, the, the way we use those words matter. Do you see, and again, this may be extrapolating out, but just looking over the past few years, um, 
given the current state of, of affairs within the United States. Do you see those words changing and, and are they changing for the better or for the worse? Or, or is that just dependent upon where you are and, and who you're with? This is something that I, I'm concerned about because I think that words have gotten hotter and not not very kind mm. and and so i think that this is something that we've got to watch calling people names categorizing different groups of people uh, those those are watchouts that for me uh, bring tremendous amount of concern and we have seen that those have also translated to increase in murderous effects. Mm-hmm. Um, I can speak about what what is what is the increase in anti-Semitic attacks, including murderous effects, and we can speak about increase in attacks of people that have an immigrant background, which, by the way, is most Americans. <laughs> right. But <laughs> right, but. But unfortunately, it, it, the crescendo mm. has is is has been incredibly worrisome. Okay, can we go back to music now for a little bit <laughs> yes, more? Yes, we can. Yes, we can. <laughs> I, I'm I'm curious about what's on your playlist these days. Changing changing things up entirely. What are you listening to? So uh, I, I I really I, there there Israeli musicians that are always on my playlist. Um, Idan Reichel, Idan Reichel, just okay. like love him. Aha, it's a group of um, female singers, love them. Uh, and then some some good old ones like uh, Ricky Gal, Achinoam Nini, Kaveret. Just 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 love them. I, I love um, I love certain songs of Rihanna that my my okay. kids bring to me. <laughs> and they're like, so, hey, you need to, you need to listen to this or Billie Eilish. Um, so I am very grateful for my kids to to bring me to the music of today. Because <laughs> otherwise, I think I would continue to listen to Miles Davis. Yeah, uh, <laughs> we we I, we tend to go back to those. Try. We tend to go back to those music of our youth, right? That's that's one of the things that Tim and I have had conversations about before and so it is it's great my my kids as well i i I listen to stuff that i would never listen to otherwise because my kids Mm -hmm. insist upon it and sometimes i'm dragged into uh listening to some of these but that's okay it's okay i know i know and i'll tell you i'll tell you here's here's one that i've been humming to myself is we are the world oh yeah because because i feel that it just it just touches so much of what we're going through at this point in time in terms of thinking about the hurt that uh, different people are 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 going through and really remembering um how fortunate i feel i feel so fortunate and so privileged and and just just thinking about this and and stopping and saying okay this happened in history these are uh, places for me to refer to and remember the moments and what it means um, and what 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 are the things that I can do and so so yeah I I've been watching We Are the World a number of times. I've been thinking a lot about um, Burt Backrack and how David's song uh, What the World Needs Now is Love Sweet Love and. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that that might sound Pollyannish, but it's a beautiful song. It's that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So I'm interested in whether or not you listen to music when you work. So it really depends. It really depends, and I will say this is also an area that my family has influenced me tremendously. Tremendously, they're like, "You really need to listen to music," and I'm like, "No, I really need to concentrate." <laughs> and and so. Um, I I sometimes listen to music, specifically Claire de Lune on like repeat um, when wow. I write. Wow. Yes, when I write, uh, I, f- I find it incredibly meaningful piece of music. Um, and, so, and and when when I'm I'm working on a book, so so when I work on that, um, I sometimes put music on. Uh, many times when I work on. Uh, on strategy and business development matters, I, I don't. 
I find it distracting. What do you think about what do you think about writing the book versus the strategy work that makes it different? So when I write the book, it's something that comes out of me onto the paper. Um, Strategies. Uh, many times, I have to read mm. a, a lot of material and integrate it, um, and um, you know, build build something from it. And I feel that when I'm doing those kinds of activities, it's a little bit easier for me if um, if I'm in quiet. Um, I, I read very intensely, uh, so I, I sometimes I will read the same line over and over again because I feel that there's a lot of meaning there and there's a lot of value to be extracted from that line. So, so then I go over it over and over it, uh, in my head. So for that, I, I need the quiet. Uh, very nice. Thank you. Yeah. Great. So I will now ask my question, which is the, <laughs> uh, any, any final thoughts as, as we, we wrap this up. If it's okay with you, I'd love to share with our listening uh, listeners, um, a poem that was written by my father, Yoshua oh. Tzfriel, that I translated from Hebrew into English. I would love that. We would love that. Thank you. The poem is called A Kind Word. A Kind Word by Yoshua Tzfriel. There are a multitude of words in the dictionary. Words sharp as swords, dividing words, injuring, injuring words, sulfur and fire. From a tender baby through wise old age, a person yearns for a luminous face. Seek and you will find a kind word, because there are, indeed there are. A kind word for one and all, hello and how are you feeling? A word of light, of warmth, of a pat on the back. A warm word, a word of encouragement, a word of kinship and friendship, a titter, a smile and blessing from the bottom of the heart. Anguish, sorrow and many tears, frequent humanity in its path. For every rose, from time to time, thorns are abundant. A word a look, reach out a hand to another. Simple words, pretty, nice. As it is not unavailable for you to express soft words. A kind word for one and all. Hello, and how are you feeling? A word of light, of warmth, of a pat on the back. A warm word, a word of encouragement, a word of kinship and friendship, a titter, a smile and blessing from the bottom of the heart. On a dreary day or a beautiful one, your day is of gathering clouds and fog. There is no ray of light. It is all black without hope. Do not despair. Keep on the fight. The night will pass and day will break. The sun will shine for you and you too with love. A kind word for one and all. Hello and how are you feeling? A word of light, of warmth, of a pat on the back. A warm word, a word of encouragement, a word of kinship and friendship, a titter, a smile, and blessing from the bottom of the heart. That was beautiful. Thank, thank you. you. That was wonderful. Iris, thank you so very much for joining us on Behavior Groups today. Thank you very much, Tim and Kurt. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I have a free-flowing discussion about things we talked about with Iris and whatever else comes into our inclusive, poetic minds. What a great way to get started. Inclusive and poetic. It was... It was a great way to end the session. I mean, yeah. it was a beautiful poem. It was gorgeous. It really was one of those wonderful things where I got a grasp for how talented her dad was as a poet hearing this magnificent poem. Because 
I don't know. There's, it's not skepticism. And it's sort of like, well, okay. So my dad was a published poet. Okay, great. You know, my dad was a landscaper. So what? You know, okay. Yeah. Roses but, are but, red, violets are blue. <laughs> yeah, but I'm then, a poet. How about you? <laughs> oh, you listen to you. You're on a roll this morning. <laughs> See, I could publish. Don't but, you think everybody would love that? Oh my God. No, no, you're, you're right. right. But when she was reading that, man, it just, it was like, wow, I really appreciate good poetry. And that was gorgeous. That was really just a beautiful piece. So it really I'm really was. glad that she shared it. And I yeah. think in 140 episodes, that's the f- first poem that we've <laughs> yeah. ever had reading, read. I think so. I'm pretty sure that that is the first. Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe we ought to, we ought to switch uh, every, every episode uh, to have a poem. Maybe we should sh- switch the, the grooving session to be a, a poem. Like uh, a, like a moth radio hour kind of a thing. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. The, 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 we'll have this, the moth grooving session. There we go. <laughs> okay, Kurt, what struck you in our conversation? Well, first off, I think the story that she tells is really important. And I think the, the work that she's doing, getting out there and people, informing people and particularly children about the Holocaust and the fact that a lot of kids don't really understand what the Holocaust was. I think that's a really important mission. Yeah. And I and I applaud her for what she's doing with that. But I think it's the the piece from a behavioral science perspective that was fascinating for me was this her use of personal stories to make that connection more effective, to to make it more real for people. And she talked about the learning lesson where she said, you know, it's easy to report numbers, but personal stories are more important. And it's not just the personal stories of her parents. It was the personal story of how it impacted her. And that, I think, is the real insight here. Yeah, yeah. That is that was really powerful that when she made the move from talking about it as statistics and numbers and uh, an historical narrative to being a personal story, she engaged the audience more, which is uh, it, it's kind of like uh, Cialdini's persuasion, right? You know, yeah. she's, she's showing people, hey, I'm kind of just like everybody else in this room. I've had parents that were like this and they were grumpy sometimes and angry and mom didn't talk about it and dad did. And, you know, oh, you know, we, we can relate to those kinds of things. So there's this natural aspect of persuasion or influence that happens because of her vulnerability in showing that she's similar to everybody else. Right. And it's kind of, we talked with Deborah Small about the identifiable victim. Oh, yeah. Uh, Again, that was about giving, but this is in this, you know, she's up presenting and she can actually be the identifiable victim to a certain degree because of the, what her parents went through impacted her childhood. And it's not, not saying that it was, she was a victim per se. Oh yeah, right, right. Not at all. No, just the term. But, but it was this idea that what happened to her parents impacted her. And so now she is up in front of the audience talking to this and people can see her and they can see, as you said, this impacted her in very significant ways. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was really cool. Uh, You know, her, her dad, uh, you know, pretty much shared everything. Her mother was silent. This kind of big uh, difference between the two of them created opportunities for someone like her older brother to say, to name the trembling place. Right? Oh, yeah. And as, as, uh, so this huge contrast, it wasn't like they were both talking about it a little bit. There was a stark contrast between dad talking about it uh, openly and mom not saying a word about it. And this is where he comes up with this trembling places thing. And I just thought that, you know, there's not a lot of psychology in that, but again, it kind of speaks to this vulnerability and that I just thought was really cool. Well, and I think she's talked about how her brother thought getting closer to that trembling place brings healing and it brings healing to herself and to the people that she loved. I believe she said something along that, that line. And yeah. That really is interesting because it's this uh, aspect of psychology, right? Where if you look into clinical psychologists, which I am not, uh, there's this idea that often some of, you know, we have hurts and we, we repress those hurts. And so, by bringing those places up where we might be trembling because it's a little scary and there's an, a subconscious aspect of that, 
And and if we can bring those to the light, it offers healing. And I thought that was really impressive. So yeah, yeah. Well, and she also sort of got a, a nudge from her son. Yeah. <laughs> in this healing story, right, where Avi says, "I already volunteered you, or voluntold <laughs> the sixth grade class teacher that you're going to talk about the Holocaust, Mom. So good luck with that." <laughs> well, which is a really imp- important piece because we often know that behavior change. The hardest part about behavior change is starting, right? It's having that nudge to get off the couch and go and exercise. Once you're exercising, you continue to exercise. But man, it's really hard to get off that couch. It's the status quo bias of what you have. And so, yeah, her son was that nudge. And I think that's really important. Uh, and, And to think about how many people in just their regular lives have important things that they could be doing but they're sitting on the couch and they don't have a son to volunteer them to <laughs> to go out and do it and what what does it take for people to get off that couch and to to make a difference yeah, you know? sometimes a little extrinsic motivation can help uh, sometimes a little <laughs> extrinsic motivation can help i yeah. want to go back um you talked about at the, the beginning you know the moth radio hour right yeah uh, and this idea of of um, you know, maybe telling making, personal stories, you know, telling personal stories, but 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 along that piece, and and that I think is an interesting aspect because if if I for you know if if I'm wrong, correct me on this, but I thought the moth you have to have those stories that people tell on that have to be those personal stories, right? They're yeah. not somebody else's stories. Yeah, I think that's a, I think that is a requirement. Yeah, and 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 that is one of the things that I think really engenders people to the moth. It's a really, you know, highly uh, successful, you know, podcast radio hour on, on NPR. And uh, I think it's really important. And I think that is what Iris was doing here is bringing that story, which is arguably about her parents and the Holocaust, but bringing the personal pieces of that into it that make it relevant to today. Yeah. And, you know, she talked about the idea of realizing that her father was a child once too, but there's also this uh-huh. piece of the audience being able to connect better with the overall story because they see how Iris was impacted by it. And so, it's it's making that story her own. And when you do that, I think the story becomes more powerful. Yeah, you know, we talk about that a lot in the world. We talk about that in success in business. We talk about be your be yourself. Everyone else is taken. Yeah, you know, uh, th- that kind of thing. And it's about crafting your own career and all that s- sort of stuff is really common. But it's not so common to see it implemented so well. And she's done a really great job of it. Yeah, I, I kudos to her definitely. But I think there's also this piece of bringing that personal story into stories that aren't necessarily about you. So, and again, I'll go back to business. Um, And one of the things that, you know, businesses have to do is they have to talk about numbers or incentives or uh, these program policy things and leaders inside organizations will often go back and report the numbers. They will report the facts and they don't bring in a personal element to that. They don't make it real to, yes, here's how we're doing it. And this is how it impacted me, or this is what I think about this and why it's important because this is how it's going to impact all of us. And there needs to be that personalization of some of those messages messages. I, I think that's a really great observation, Kurt, because in the current crisis that we're in with sheltering at home, a lot of businesses are shuttered and we've gotten those tons and tons of emails about how we're all in this together and blah, blah, blah. But so many of them have lacked a personal story. And the ones that have touched me the most are the ones where they have a very personal story. I've talked about the Dakota, the local jazz club. And how uh, one of one of their greatest regular performers, Nachita Herrera, contracted the disease, and yeah. so they started to go fund me to to help offset his medical costs. 
and it's just it's so terrific to to see a very personal story come from the from an organization rather than just we're all in this together right uh, as diff- as, as maybe subtle as that nuance might be it makes a big difference in messaging it does it does all right, Tim, what else? What did you get from this conversation? Well, she started to talk about the roots of racism and uh, the demonization of the other. It just seemed all too easy that she just started riffing on, you know, the Holocaust was really big scale, but by the way, indigenous people have been, you know, uh, victims of genocide in, you know, all continents and the killing fields in Cambodia and the revolution in South Sudan and African slavery. It's like, wow. that list was, was almost overwhelming. Just think about thinking about just in recent history, how dramatic uh, demonization is. Each geography, as she said, has their own genocide story and (laughs) which is scary when you think about it. Um, But I think to her point, her telling her story and the story of her parents helps people get that connection. And yeah. if they can make that connection, it becomes more real for them. Yes. Uh, but then I think she also gets into the roots of that racism, right? And she talked about it It starts with words. Yeah. Yeah. It starts with words. Like she gave that example of, we're going to bake a cake. <laughs> and then 45 minutes later, there's a cake. So it, but it starts with the words. Right. And that is, I think, important because words have impact. And the tone, the message that those words are sending, and in today's highly tribal, politicized world, words take on, I think, an even stronger and more impactful meaning in this time and place. Yeah. And there are the words that are outright just you know, negative and lend themselves to demonizing the others. Yeah, or inflammatory. Inflammatory. Yeah. And then there's the words that are more of a dog whistle that could be interpreted one way, but depending upon your prior held beliefs, you will have motivated reasoning to take them either one of two directions. And I think there's a lot more of both of those today. Yeah. Um, and and I'm worried. I think there's there's a piece of this that it starts with words. And when it starts with words, we have to be very careful about the words we use. And uh, it starts with some of the leadership that's going on, I think, across the world right now. But when you start oh, yeah. talking about others as pests or viruses, particularly given the, the what's going on today, uh, you talk about the negative aspects of of something you're reinforcing and creating uh that connection to a separate group and when you do that people have throughout history demonized them and bad things happen because of that well yeah i think we could go to albert albert bandura's great studies of the bobo doll effect Right of where the leader, where the adult comes into the room and demonstrates to the kids that they can be mean to the bobo doll, and then they they do, yeah, and they they are. It's just yeah. easier when that happens as opposed to when the adult comes in and doesn't demonstrate that or say that it's okay to demonize the bobo doll. Then they don't. Yeah. So for those who don't know the study, it was done back in the, I believe, early seventies, maybe late sixties, where they have this big blow up doll in a room. They have kids in there and uh, the researchers would come in and either smack the Bobo doll or not smack the Bobo doll. I'm really generalizing this uh, and shortening it up. But then you would see kids respond. Mm -hmm. And when they, you know, basically the research went on, like in many of those studies, it was after the researcher left and the child was left in there by him or herself. And they, they watched what that child did. And in those cases, they followed the lead of what the adult did more often than not. And we look at the world today and you look at the words that are used and the actions that are being taken and you can see this. You can see how people are responding 
to the words that people are saying, even as it goes to the pandemic and our response to that, right? There's these people who are being told that now, you know, they're, why are we being self-quarantined and this is hurting more people because of the economic impact that it has and they're going out and they're protesting. Um, and and I, I'm really concerned because I think that some of that is because there are leaders who are having an agenda, who are trying to uh, influence politics moving down the road and this is, they're using words to incite these types of behaviors that according to all of the medical experts, and again, I guess it depends on if you're listening to medical experts or not, but again, that gets down to motivated reasoning. Yes. You, th that's really a dumb idea. Yeah, um, yeah it is. Uh, it also reminds me of Christina Bicchieri's book, The Grammar of Society. Now that book isn't just about words, but she she does speak to how um, the way words influence social norms is yeah. really important, right? And and this is a great example of uh, getting bringing this back to Iris. This whole it starts with words, the words that we use to describe things, the words that we we share with each other. Her father's poem, "A Nice Word, a Kind Word," is is all about the words that we use matter. And and I think it's important to to just to think about that and to make sure that we're we're in on that basically as we go forward. Just across the board, uh, really interesting conversation, um, you know. And and I do like her comment though because we were talking. We asked her about, you know, are you trying to make sure that the you know the deniers out there that who don't say the mm -hmm. the Holocaust happened? And she said. Um, it's not my job to persuade the deniers. It's a fruitless endeavor. Yeah, Which, yeah. To to the degree again of behavioral science, it's really hard to change people's beliefs. So, you know, it's it's this aspect of really understanding what her role is out there, and yeah. um, not trying to make it something that it's not. And I just applaud her, and I thought it was a really interesting and powerful conversation yeah okay with that folks hang in there for the bonus track we'll be right back hey groovers this is tim with a bonus track after our discussion with iris safrier iris brought a beautiful accidental behavioral science perspective to the podcast that continues to fuel kurt's and my mission behind this endeavor to expand the community of those interested in behavioral science what makes her an accidental behavioral scientist is that she understands the core principles of influence and how to apply them. Kurt and I were happy to discuss Iris's real-world experiences with her and to continue discussing these in our grooving session. There were a couple of major discussion points for us. The first was how the use of personal stories make presentations more impactful. This emerges from the scientific literature as the identifiable victim and from popular culture of the authenticity effect. The identifiable victim is what pro-social organizations deem most effective in fundraising because a vivid and relatable personal story is easier for donors to connect to, at least easier than statistics and big picture analytics. Although the word victim is by no means applicable to Iris, she's putting the concept of good use in her storytelling. And she's also relying on authenticity, which is a form of credibility that comes from an alignment of that life that is true to who she is. She is the daughter of two Holocaust survivors. That credibility adds to the effectiveness of her presentations. The second key issue we discussed was the roots of racism and in particular on words. Her comment that it starts with words reminded Kurt and me of Christina Bicchieri's terrific book, The Grammar of Society, and how in many cases social norms both reflect and emerge from the words we use. We live in a time when populist leaders have been elected into power by citizens who are tired of words that are politically correct and want to, as they say, call a spade a spade. But like Albert Bandura's Bobo doll experiments, we tend to follow the leader of our reference network in not just words, but behaviors as well. Also, intolerance is on the rise, and it crowds out inclusion and diversity. And both inclusion and diversity are the hallmarks of societies that are innovation powerful. Now it's time for the groove idea for the week. 
Our world can be overwhelming when we strain to think through big picture issues, but thinking about a single person is infinitely easier. So let's start there this week. Think about one person you know who could use a little support, or as the title of Iris's father's wonderful poem, A Kind Word. They could be a loved one, a child, a parent, a sibling, or a friend, or a work colleague. Maybe it's a neighbor who you've gotten familiar with because of your daily walks through the neighborhood that you're sheltering at home. The Groove idea for the week is to share a kind word with one person that you see this week. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your support. We always appreciate it. Have a good week, and keep on grooving. That was great. By the way, this is my favorite bonus track of all time. 